here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we kick off today's episode, we'd like to give you a taste of what you can expect from our January virtual retreat. Here are excerpts of interviews that I've done with Lisa Cron of Story Genius and Courtney Mom of Before and After the Book Deal. These are writing professionals at the top of their game, which is exactly why we invited them to speak at the retreat. Today, I really want to focus on the craft of writing and who better to speak to than you, Lisa. So let's dive in. Why don't you tell us what the single biggest mistake is that writers make? The biggest mistake that writers make is that they 
think that the story is about the plot. And they think that if they come up with a plot, if they come up with something really rip-roaring that is objectively, or seems to them anyway, objectively dramatic, and then they start writing and they write really beautiful, lovely, luscious sentences, they will have a story. And that is 100% not how it works. I think that is why they say that out of 100 people who sit down to write a first draft, that's 100 people just to write a first draft, only three people will make it to the end of just that first draft. And then of those people, now imagine if you finish the first draft and then fully you know that now you go back and you're going to do some rewriting and you're going to really get it ready to go. So of the people who then go back, do some rewriting and decide, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take this out into the world. I'm going to, I'm going to query an agent. The number out there is what they say is, is that agents reject 96% of the manuscripts that are submitted. I personally believe having been, having been an agent and having read manuscripts for more decades than I want to admit to being alive. And I'm talking to my own agent about that. I think that number is low. I would put it at more like 98%. And that means now that of those three people who finished, well, let's imagine that two are going to get to the place, you know, where they're finally going to send it out to somebody. And that means that of those, of those two people, <laughs> it's like 98% of them are going to get rejected, which means like what's left an arm, maybe it's going to get, you know, get accepted. And if you think, okay, well, forget it. I'm not going to go the traditional route because, you know, agents and editors are meanies and, you know, they don't know anything and I'm just going to get it out there and I'm going to self-publish it. And the truth is most self-published books sell at most a hundred, 150 copies. And let's face it, most of those are to family and friends <laughs> who say they read it and loved it, but you never really know. The thing is, writing's hard. It's re it is hard. It's a hard thing to do. And anyone who tells you it's easy is trying to sell you something. It is not an easy thing to do. Writers write because they have to. They don't write because I've got to get words on a page. They write because they have something to tell. They have a point they want to make. They have something they want to take out into the world. And that is really what keeps them going. But figuring out what that is and what that point is and what that story is and creating it before you, long before you get to page one, is the thing that then creates those manuscripts that people really do want to read. Tell us a bit more about the handbook before and after the book deal. I just think it's an amazing resource for writers. I like the word handbook because it really is something I was hoping that people would hold in their hands, hold close to their desk where they're working on whatever it is they're working on. I wanted to write a book, not just for people who want to you know, see their name in lights or have, have a book on a bookshelf, but also the people who had a book come out and are just feeling completely destabilized and disorientated between what they thought the experience would be and then what it actually became. I find, again, in, in America especially, this focus on the MFA has left us oversaturated with resources that teach us how to write better and tell us if you take enough classes, invest enough in summer writer workshops, whatever, hire an outside editor, you'll get a book deal. But then there's no resources. There's nothing that tells us how to behave, what to expect, what not to expect when we actually do get that book deal, when the dream is realized. So I wanted to write the book that quite literally will guide you. I mean, I find it 
pretty darn exhaustive, the book. Like I really tried to go through every single point in this choose your own adventure of, of publishing a book from everything that can happen. You know, you're with a micro press all the way up to, you do get the million dollar book deal. You get the movie deal, all the things that can happen along the way, how to protect yourself, how to educate yourself. And of course we have interviews with almost 200 publishing professionals. It's not like a memoir (laughs) or something. I bring in the, you know, the big guns, not just editors and agents and other writers, but foreign scouts, film scouts, voiceover narrators, translators, copy editors, the editorial assistants who have been dying to tell writers what makes them impossible to work with. You know, we hear from a lot of different people. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Today, we've got two authors joining us so that we can get to pick their brains and chat with them. And as you know, we're always wildly excited when that happens. This morning, we're joined by Lynn and Michelle, and we're going to start with Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Lynn, could you kick us off by reading your query letter? Sure. Okay, here we go. Dear Carly, I'm a published author seeking representation for my 110,000-word historical women's fiction manuscript, Her Own Place. Her Own Place elevates the voice of my heroine Lois Wright, an African-American woman coming of age in the tumultuous early 20th century when the country was exploding with changes for women. In 1915, with nothing but a stolen bookkeeping textbook and an idea, Lois Wright drops out of the St. Ursuline Convent School. She swiftly applies her aptitude for business to become the manager of the New Orleans brothel where her her widowed mother, the house cook, had raised her. The Great War interrupts her engagement to Pierre, a delivery man who plans to open a French bakery. When the city council shuts down the brothels in 1917 and Pierre dies in a trench in France, Lois resolves to find a new place in the world. Working temporarily in a French restaurant, Lois discovers an unexpected passion and with it, a determination to open the business she and Pierre had imagined. Her talents attract an unwanted job offer as a cook for a wealthy Virginia railroad magnet. Needing to support herself and now curiously eyeing the famous Jackson Ward, the Harlem of the South, Lois boards the Crescent Limited for Richmond. As Lois hides her history and chases the dream of her own place, her life becomes entangled with the lives of three other women, each with her own complicated past. It will take a murder to separate them. Her own place will appeal to women and to book clubs who enjoy historical novels alive with smart, determined, and flawed female characters. Fiction that wrestles with the complexity of female friendships crossing race and class lines. Examples include Lisa Wingate's The Book of Lost Friends, Amanda Scannendor's The Undertaker's Assistant, and Emma Donahue's The Pull of the Stars. The important work of Isabel Wilkerson in The Warmth of Other Suns and Cast, and Alelia Bundle's On Her Own Ground, the basis for self-made, the Netflix series, are examples of nonfiction that inspired this novel. My first two novels, Catfish Alley and Alligator Lake, were published by Penguin in 2011 and 2012. Both books received good reviews and were book club favorites. Alligator Lake became a bestseller in Norway in 2013 and was translated into Dutch for publication in the Netherlands in 2020. These works of Southern women's fiction grapple with race, class, and family secrets ubiquitous to my Mississippi childhood. My home is now in Colorado, where I teach nursing at the University of Colorado. Thank you for your time and consideration. Wonderful, Lynn. Thanks so much for that. Okay, Carly, why don't you tell us what you thought of Lynn's query letter? Absolutely. I like to start off this segment by saying thank you for being brave. Thank you for coming on the show with us. 
Uh, we know how hard it is to, uh, you know, put your work forward like this and for the sake of everybody else to learn, but you're a teacher, so you get it. So thank you. Okay. So let's start with a query. So normally I have this thing about word count where I'm like, I like it just to be a bit closer to hundred thousand or a little bit under hundred thousand ideally, but it's historical. So I know there's some world building. So anytime there's some world building, like I'm okay with it being over a hundred thousand because my philosophy is really the book needs to be as long as it takes to tell the story that you need to tell. Right. So it's okay to be a little bit over, but just know, you know, you're, you're getting on the longer side of things. The title. So this title doesn't tell me very much. And I really wish the title told me more. So I would probably comb your brain, try to find some other options or just kind of go through the manuscript again, see if there's any turns of phrases you like, or, or even just like the name of the brothel or any like of those like really turning, you know, key moments of turning in the manuscript or in the book, I think I would I'd like to see some other title options. Okay, so now we're getting into the the body paragraph here. So it's hard with historical because you have to tell us, you know, what's going on in this person's life. And it ends up reading a little bit synopsis like because you're saying like, she started here, and then she did this. And then you know, then she does this, and then she moves here. And so naturally, with historical pitches, it tends to be a little bit synopsis like. But that said, then at the end, we have a it will take a murder to separate them. And I'm like, you're bur- are you burying the lead here? Like, what's going on? So I think that you have, you know, if I'm reading this right, you have a huge moment here that's coming up, right? So I would bump this murder hook up to the top and then kind of help, like frame the frame the pitch a little bit more around that because it seems like it's a, you know, a, a huge moment here because... It's not that this book sounds quiet by any means. Like, obviously, you know, the, the brothel hook is very interesting. And, you know, don't see too many books about brothels in the 1900s. So I, I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about this. But a murder, like, we can't have that the last line. We got we to gotta bump that up because it's, um, it's definitely uh, very, very compelling. The next thing is we have a lot of comps here. Okay, so we have one, two, three, four, five, six-ish comps. We don't need that many. So we need one to two, maybe three, if you're including like a podcast or a movie or, you know, anything like TV show, any other mediums, um, you can have three, but definitely don't need this many. The other thing you don't need is the publisher and pub date. Like I know you're probably trying to show like, hey, you know, these are recent, but you know, I don't think you need to do that. I think everybody knows Lisa Wingate's name. I know Amanda. I met her at a conference before, like Emma Donahue, we know her. So obviously, you know, Case was a huge book. Um, You know what I mean? So I think we know a lot of this stuff. So you don't really need to kind of pad the word count of the of the pitch with with pub dates and years. The next thing we're getting to the bottom here. So you don't have to like spell out the whole like I had an agent and then I didn't have an agent and like this is what's happening in my career in the query. But usually somebody will if they did have an agent, they'll have a line like, you know, I amicably parted ways with my former agent or something like that just to let us know that you were agented and that you're kind of, you know, you're on the market again. You don't have to do this. But if we see that you're published by one of the big five, we're going to assume you had an agent. And so just letting us know it's like it's an amicable parting ways or, you know, something friendly like that is always is always nice. And and then I'm assuming you mentioned the Taryn Fagernis agency because that's our foreign rep. So I'm assuming that's that's probably why you mentioned it. But you don't need to if it's for anybody else, you don't really need to mention that. We love Taryn. She does all of our foreign rights stuff. Um, and she's great. She sold I got an email from her yesterday. She did three deals for me the day before Thanksgiving. So we love we love Taryn. Okay, so that's kind of my my larger my larger take on the query letter. 
And the only other thing and we can de- we can obviously delve into this more when we when we get to the pages, but but thinking just in terms of a overall kind of situation is that you appear to me to be a white lady and you're writing about an African American woman um, in 1915. So I just kind of would like to know, you know, how did you do your research? Or, you know, is this own voices? And I don't know, or, you know, like, is this a family story? Like, I would just, you know, if you could share a little bit of, of like your research, and then just for me on the podcast, you don't really have to get into it a lot in the query letter. But I think just one line about like your research, or if this is a family story, or, or something like that, I think, would, would be helpful to help us understand you coming to this topic, presenting as a white lady. Yeah, just just on that. So I think as well, what people want there, Lynn, is to agents often look for why are you the person to tell the story? What makes you qualified to tell the story and, and not someone else? And for example, you know, my first two novels were based in South Africa during apartheid. And in each instance, I did write from a black woman's perspective. And so in my query letters, you know, I wrote about how I was raised in this environment and I was raised to be racist in the, you know, sort of apartheid regime. And then my whole life has been an unpacking of race uh, and my own inherent racism. And so me writing this book, these books was a way for me to explore my racism and how it affected black people that I was interacting with my my whole life. So, you know, I think that's the kind of thing perhaps that Carly's getting at is why are you telling the story from um, um, an African-American woman's kind of perspective? All right, Lynn, so we're going to hand across to you. Would you like to just answer some questions there or give us a bit more context before we go into your opening pages? Sure. Um, yeah, actually, I'm really glad to be able to talk about this because this has been something that I have really sort of agonized over. And it's interesting to hear you say about your experience and how you were raised, because I was raised the first 27 years of my life, my formative years in Mississippi in the Deep South. And I have wrestled with issues of race in my writing. My first two novels did, and this one does. But why am I qualified This is the story that I have, uh, this story has been a decade in the making uh, in various iterations, and this is the voice that is a most interesting to me and that I keep hearing telling this story. There are three other women. Initially, I had it in multiple points of view, but Lois's voice just needed to tell this story. And yes, research tons, tons and tons. And that's how I learn. I, I believe we write to understand. And, and I'm very tuned into the own voices movement and very supportive of it. Absolutely. But what I would like to see is that we, we write what we're given to write and then we share it and we tell each other where we got it wrong or got it right. And so that's what I've had to come to. I just, I value writing about what we share and respecting how we differ. And, and so that's kind of where I'm coming from with writing this story. And, you know, I know that there are going to be those questions. There have been already. Uh, There have been ever since I wrote Catfish Alley. My editor at Penguin was like, you know, you're going to get this. And I was like, okay. Um, So I'll stop. You know, I could yammer on, but I'll stop. (laughs) So, so Carly, just on that. So what kind of line would you like to see Lynn including in terms of her research? 
That's a really great question, you know, and I think it, it comes back to, you know, I can't write that line for you, right? I think it's, you know, you you explaining and exploring, you know, and, and I know in a query letter, like, we're trying to do so much in such a little amount of space, right? So we don't have the opportunity to do, to do that big, deep dive. But I think I think it comes from you, your, your like where you grew up and, you know, being so, um, you know, immersed in, um, in the deep south. And obviously, that's really important. But I also liked what Bianca said about unpacking our own biases, right? And I think that's really important too, um, you know, talking about how how this story has helped you in in various ways and growing as a writer and and how you said this this character is the person that needs to tell this story, right? Like that this is the character. So as long as you have that conviction in your heart and you feel like, you know, this is the way it needs to be written, this is, you know, and and you feel that drive, um, you know, I do believe you can you can write outside of your of of what you know as long as you do it really well and smartly and, and with research. So and I I know that other people feel that as well. And and you are gonna get, you know, some pushback or some questions, you know, like you're editor said, I think that's only increasing in recent years for a lot of good reasons, right? Like we have to, we have to question and we have to push those boundaries and and ask ourselves why, 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 why? So it seems like you're in the right headspace to be asking those questions. And so, and so, yeah, that's kind of all I need to know. Wonderful. Yeah. And those questions are good. These are conversations we absolutely must be having. And like you say, you, you welcome that Lynn. So that's great. Okay. Could you give us an overview of what's in your opening pages before Carly discusses them? Sure. And I noticed with my submission, I, I couldn't remember, did you guys ask for five or 10? Five. Five. Okay. Okay. So my opening pages are intended to establish Lois in her current life. She's about to drop out of school in the first five pages. And um, I, I uh, shift from her current scenario. She's having an interaction with one of the nuns in the convent. And so they're intended to, to demonstrate uh, Lois's voice, her personality, that she's, you know, she's sort of stubborn, hard-headed, but kind of committed to making her way in the world. And yeah, so we see her in the convent, we see her interaction, we see her, she works in the sex trade. And, you know, prostitution was legal from 1897 to 1917 in New Orleans. And so her mother's a cook at the whorehouse. They called them sporting houses. That's why I have that. And so she doesn't know any other family other than the other prostitutes. And so it's sort of intended to establish this is her normal. This is, this is uh, her intention is to find a way to not be a cook or a prostitute. She wants more, but she's going to make do with what she's got right now. There's a lot of work in those first five to 10 pages to establish this because then the narrative sort of, you know, jumps from when the, the whorehouse actually closes. But we need to know her and her the people in her life. And Lizzie, her dear friend, who's Creole, is um, is a big part of the story. So, yeah. That's- Wonderful. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? All right. So I I love that you have a timestamp. We're very pro timestamp here. So you tell us her perspective, um, or Lois's point of view, April 1915, St. Ursuline's Convent School, New Orleans. Great. So we, we know where we are. So I had a, a couple of like, three kind of major big picture things. So 
Number one is for a girl of color, a black girl to be in school at age 18 in the early 1900s either tells me, you know, there's a scholarship or somehow she's really wealthy or she's gifted or I just kind of I think I need a little bit of context early on to explain to me why and how she's in school. Um, because I think it's great that she's in school. Like education is so powerful. I'm I'm happy that she's in school, but like I wanna know why, because that is not the norm. So I think we need to establish that a little bit more clearly. The the second thing is who is this book for, right? And I'm assuming this is a book club type of, you know, audience, right? Women's fiction, historical, you know, all in that space. And so I am, I'm really wrestling with the balance of word choice because, sorry for our squeamish uh, listeners, but we have some words like whoring and um, dick and things like that. So we're like, you know, we're, we're being really forthright with our language choices here. And this is obviously the word choice that they would have used. So um, that's totally fine if it's authentic, but also like you're going to make some people pretty squeamish. And so the historical women's fiction readers um, are normally a certain type of person. And, and, you know, you're writing with forthright sex language and it's sex positive and that's great. But you're, I think they're, you're going to come up against some challenges in terms of exactly. And I don't think that people need to necessarily write for the audience. I think that, you know, we're, we're also, you know, we want writers to challenge their audience and sometimes make them uncomfortable, but you're making them pretty uncomfortable on page one. So that's a choice by you to kind of make those, those word choices on page one. Um, and I know that you know that. Um, and so that's just, again, the things that are, that are kind of swirling in my head. And the third thing, the third big picture thing here is our jumping back and forth from our present moment to the past. I think it happens twice where we, we go from being in, we're sitting in the, we're sitting in the classroom and then we jump to her mom and like when our character is a baby, you know, she's in her mom's arms and then we go back to the present in the classroom and then we go back to the, her first day of school, you know, being introduced at six years old to the convent. So we're doing a lot of jumping around in five pages. And so I would say definitely try to stay put longer in one place. That would be really important to me because we get confused about who the main character is, right? Like we want, you want to establish to us that Lois is the main character. So I think we just, that jumping around makes me confused about who the main character is or if we're going to be head hopping or what's to come. And I know, again, I know you have a lot of work to do in these five pages to establish all of those things you just said. And uh, especially with historical, right? We have to world build. So I, I know how difficult it is, but I would really just encourage you to try to stay in one place and make some drama happen in that classroom in that moment, right? So, um, so you know, we talk about, you know, CC talks about this a lot. And we also talk about this when we do our webinars and when we do our retreats. It's like that those opening pages are so important because not only do you want to, you know, do the lay the foundation and the groundwork for everything, but that that opening scene has to be a microcosm for so much more, right? And there needs to be an incident, not necessarily inciting incident, but there needs to be a moment in that classroom. And there almost is a moment in that classroom when she almost says what she's thinking um, about, you know, the word choice and things like that. And so does she say a version of that and then gets into trouble? And and I don't know, I, I just think we need a bit more flurry in that classroom moment. And we need to be in that classroom moment a little bit more if that's the, port, the, the, the part of the book that we do think. Um, where the book begins. So those are my three big, big items. Wonderful, Collie. Thank you. Lynn, would you like to uh, give us a few thoughts on that? What has your experience been before when chatting to book clubs? Did your previous books have, have this kind of content or, or not really? 
my previous books were probably a little more G-rated than this one. Um, but yeah, we I've had great experience with book clubs, uh, women of color as well as white women. In, in response, I, I appreciate all that. Thank you so much. Um, within that first 10 pages, we do find out that she has a benefactor, um, the man who, run, who owns the whorehouse. And that is the reason, although she hates being what she calls beholden to him, um, he is a benefactor that keeps her in school. And um, I know what you mean about the dick thing. If I can say that, I'm assuming I can. It's, it's, this is a shit no one tells you. I'm assuming I can say dick. I did remove a couple of dicks. I did realize <laughs> that um, on the first page might be a little much. So I kept it in her head. And then she jerks her head up to see that she's not so. Yeah, but mostly because, you know, there was a lot of research, too, believe it or not, to figure out which term was right in 1915. But anyway, the jumping back and forth. Yes. Uh, thank you. I I, uh, I need to work on that. Figure out how to do it less. Um, space it out. Figure it out. But yeah, that does that answer? Questions? Yeah. Do you do you have any questions, Lynn? You've you've got Carly for another two or three minutes. Do you have anything you'd like to pick her brain on? Or Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I mean, if Lynn doesn't have a question, I, there is something I would share, but I don't want to take time away from the questions because that's more important. Oh, no. I, I, this is great. I've gotten a lot of information, so no, I'll stop here hear what you have to say. It, it's really a note for listeners in general. One thing that I always look out for when I'm talking to, to writers, um, especially at this stage, is when I ask them about their first pages, and I usually get answers like, I was trying to establish X, Y, Z. Um, I was working to establish. I cannot underscore this enough to anyone listening. Your job is not to establish anything. Your job is to entertain. You will establish in the entertaining, but you are not writing nonfiction. You are not writing a textbook. The place where most um, writers come from, this is a generalization, but I feel like it's a fair one. Um, in terms of their experience with creative writing in formative years. And I know this is not your case, Lynn, because you have like published successful books under your belt. But for all our listeners, the place that we come from is school. We typically write a short story or an essay or whatever, and our teacher will read it and our teacher will grade it. And as readers, also in school, we read the whole book, we write a book report and we share our thoughts. This instills in our brain an assumption, an unconscious assumption that people are going to read the whole thing before sharing their opinion. They are not. They're going to read a paragraph, maybe a page if they have a lot of patience. If you do not hook the reader with something that is dramatic from the very, very beginning, it will not matter that it happens on page 10. It will not matter that the good part is coming just, just, you know, around the corner. It won't matter. It, it sounds super harsh to say this. And again, I am saying this to, to our listeners in general. Um, but nobody cares that the thing that, you know, the dramatic event is going to happen on page 10. Truly nobody cares. And, you know, I, I will see this often with journalists too. They write articles, even if it's an article for a very prestigious, um, competitive publication. I don't know, the New Yorker, like getting published in the New Yorker. When, when I'm reading a magazine, I'm already invested in the magazine. Like if I come across your article, I'll start reading it and maybe I'll stop. But I'm already in the magazine anyway, so why not start? With the book, that's not the case. Someone has to stop everything they're doing to pick up your book. So truly, you must have power imbalance and a goal and an obstacle right in the beginning. And I think that's what's missing here. Right. So now we move on to our next writer who has submitted for the podcast. And this they uh, submitted specifically to Cece. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So could you begin by reading us your query letter? Sure. Dear Miss Lyra, 
I recently discovered the shit no one tells you about writing and had very much enjoyed listening to your insights, as well as those of Carly and Bianca too, of course. My heart beat even faster when I reviewed your manuscript wish list and found that we love many of the same books and that my manuscript checks several boxes on your fiction wish list. How to Escape a Burning Building is an upmarket contemporary novel, complete at 98,000 words, told alternately from the perspectives of three women. It is in the dramatic spirit of novels by Leanne Moriarty and Celeste Ng and wields dark humor reminiscent of writers like Mona Awad. Marcella Carrigan, a fiercely protective mother who works as a ghostwriter for reformed criminals, struggles to pay the rising costs of her severely asthmatic son's medications. When her son's health sharply declines, the only solution is to add a cost-prohibitive prescription to the mix that their insurance won't cover. Marcella teams up with two other desperate mothers to earn the extra money. Her best friend Penny, an underpaid executive at a local nonprofit, struggles to save her family from financial ruin spurred by her husband's poor decision making. And Vera, a rich and charismatic woman with a penchant for tarot cards, is pushed out of the family business by her ruthless father and needs a second act to salvage her reputation. Vera recruits Marcella and Penny for high-paying jobs at a new nonprofit she hopes to launch. They need a solid business plan in time for a trip to Trinidad, where they'll meet a well-heeled but elusive investor who may be the key to their success. Except the women don't know one another as well as they think, and they embark upon a horrific trip from which not everyone returns. I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where the novel is set, a semi-rural, post-industrial town with a vanishing middle class and a large concentration of old money residents. I completed my MFA in creative writing from the University of California, Riverside. I've published short, st short stories in several literary journals, including Southwester, Cosmonauts Avenue, Literary Orphans, Dash Literary Journal, Permafrost Magazine, and others. Also, my story Benched was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. I'm co-founder of the monthly literary meetup Right Now Lancaster and an adjunct faculty member at the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design, where I teach creative writing courses. Thank you so much for your consideration. Sincerely, Michelle. Wonderful, Michelle. Thank you. Okay, Cece, why didn't you tell us what you thought of the query letter? Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that was such a joy to read. I want to begin by saying that I love the title. I love titles that make me go, okay, I know this is not actually a manual to escape a burning building. So it's obviously a metaphor. Now I want to know, like, what is it a metaphor for? It's so quirky and I love it. You did a great job with the first paragraph. You gave me title, word count, genre, comps. I love, as everyone knows at this point, I love Leon Moriarty. I love Celeste Inc. I love Mona Awad. Like this is just all music to my ear. So I'm very excited. Whenever I get a query like this, I'm always very excited to read the pages because if the writer is right, um, that their work is, is similar to these talented authors, I know that I will be interested. In terms of the plot paragraph, first one's working really well. The first sentence in paragraph three, Marcella teams up with two other desperate mothers. I would wait to um, introduce the other women first before getting into, you know, the teaming up. 
since it is uh, alternating POVs, you want to establish, you know, each person's situation first, and then the fact that they all come together to do this one thing. As well, uh, I wonder if there could be a bit more specificity in the last line of that paragraph. And they embark upon a horrific trip from which not everyone returns. Like, horrific trip is quite vague. Like, it could be anything from they're being hunted in a jungle by serial killers to, I don't know, like, there's lots of confusion in the hotel. Like, if you've watched White Lotus, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, a lot of <laughs> confusion in a resort. So I really, like, I have no idea. Not everyone returns is good because drama, right? Um, but do we need to omit the number of people who don't return? Um, if it's one of the three women, it's much more powerful to say one of the three women won't return. But if it's not one of the three women, then then ignore my note. My big, big note in terms of the plot paragraph, which is always a thing I fixate on because I can get over anything else, is what is the antagonistic force here? I understand their goals. I understand why they need the money. And in, in Vera's case, I understand why she needs the win. I don't quite see an obstacle as clearly as I would want. What I see is they need a solid business plan. But like, don't get me wrong, writing a business plan is hard, but it's not that hard, right? Like it's not merits a novel hard. So what are they up against? Is there a ticking time clock? My guess is the story does have the stakes just based on the setup. Um, you're not quite establishing the stakes here in the query letter, um, which is good for me as the agent, because I will probably pay attention and read it faster than all the other agents, but not good for you as the storyteller. Um, and your last paragraph is perfection. Like, so impressive. Congratulations for all these accomplishments. I hope you're very, very proud. Thank you. One, wonderful, Cece. Before we go to Michelle, Carly, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Um, I just want to echo the um, who, how many people come home kind of thing. It was reminding me of um, my client Andrew Dunlop's novel, Losing the Light. And I um, I just pulled up the back cover copy description because I was like, I, I can't remember what we said about that one. So that one is a three people, you know, somebody doesn't come home situation. I'll just read you the last line of the cover copy so, so you kind of know. So it says... Um, the cousins draw Sophie and Brooke into an irresistible world of art, money, decadence, and ultimately a disastrous love triangle that consumes them both. And of the two of them, only one will make it home. So that's just an example of, yeah, just specifying. And I think that, that Cece's right. The stakes are a lot higher if we understand one makes it home, nobody makes it home, you know, whatever the, whatever the number is. So that reminded me of mm -hmm. Andrew's novel. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Michelle, what, uh, what comments do you have for, for Cece and Carly? They're all questions you might have based on what they've said. Um, well, that is very helpful. I was actually worried about that last line of the third paragraph being too vague. That was something that um, I've been thinking about lately. So it's good to hear reinforcement that I should rework that. In terms of not everyone returning, do you want me to to tell you whether it's no, one of the three? I want you because as long well, if you have to tell me to ask a question, sure. But if you understand what I'm saying, like the if it's one of the women, write that. If it's not, then we could then, also make no, Cece take your headphones. More. We could, sorry, we yeah, can also you make Cece take your headphones off. I do that. This is something I do all the time because I can't stand spoilers. Do you want? Do you oh. want to share? And I'll take oh, my no, no, off. no, 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 no. I know what to do. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then. If you could just, so I have been a little bit confused about how to go about writing a query letter that, you know, highlights three different women because it's told from the POVs of three different women. 
Um, Marcella is sort of like the main character, but the other two are, are, you know, pretty integral as well. So you, you said something about waiting to introduce the other two characters until later. And could you just clarify that a little bit for me? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I meant the first line of paragraph number three, which is Marcella teams up with two other desperate mothers to earn the extra money. That line needs to be moved, in my opinion, till after we have the line about Penny and Vera. Oh, okay. Because, like, you're telling me that she's teaming up with people that I haven't met yet. Oh, I see, I see. Like, I get that Marcella is in a very, very tough spot. I get the pressure that's on her. And now when you tell me Penny, I totally get the pressure by Penny, too. Like, her husband's irresponsible and has been gambling away the money. I don't know if it's gambling, but you know what I'm saying. Like, losing the money. Um, Mm -hmm. And now we have Vera, who I totally get her motivation as well. And you've done something really impressive, which has established three motivations and not that many words. Like, good on you just really move that line it's about moving a line the three women you know team up to whatever sure sure yeah no that makes perfect sense thank you one last question uh the comps are okay because i was a little bit worried about using people's names and not using actual titles is that um is that something that bothers you or is that okay My preference, I feel like this is fair to say that probably most agents' preferences is for like works, right? Like if you're able to find two works that that will tell us what your work is about, you know, like my lovely wife is Dexter meets Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know, stuff like that, then then that's ideal. However, that's not always possible. And so it's okay to say for fans of, in the vein of, and then mention authors. It's one of those situations where the best thing to do might not be possible. And so the perfect is the enemy of the good, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, that's all I have. Thank you. Right, Michelle, will you give us a bit of a synopsis as to what is in those opening pages before CC critiques them? Sure. Um, The first page is a flash forward to the climax of the novel. And the main characters are basically shown in a burning building. Uh, We're told that there are bodies on the floor and that one of them has stopped breathing. And then the remaining pages are told from Marcella's point of view five months earlier. And uh, she's working from home uh, when her son has a life-threatening asthma attack. And uh, she tries to stay outwardly calm, even though she's really freaking out. Um, She gives him his medication and the two of them sit there and kind of wait to to see whether this is going to be a trip to the emergency room or not. And obviously, um, you know, her son's conditions and the costs of properly treating him is uh, what makes a higher paying job with Vera's nonprofit um, so essential to her. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those opening pages? All right. So hooray for timestamps. We must always celebrate timestamps. Thank you for that. Um, I like that you kept, let's just call it what it is, the prologue, prologue. I like that you kept the prologue short. It does work. It's not, it's not like the prologue isn't working. It didn't frustrate me or aggravate me or do any of the bad stuff um, prologues can do. I think we need clues. We need specific clues. Um, I'm not going to get into my line notes. You'll get the pages after people support the podcast. will also get this. Um, But last paragraph, we get Marcella closing her eyes. They need a plan. 
No more rumination on who's at fault and how they got here. All that matters is what's next. Good. Good start, but you need to dig deeper. This is excellent on a line level. Very well written. Like I said, like that it's short, but to up the tension, I'd recommend including, instead of these lines that I read, clues on the specific panic and specific next steps. I have no idea what happens in your novel, but it could be something like, they'll need a scapegoat, someone to take the fall, or else blah, blah, blah will be upset and will, I don't know, have their heads. Or the firm must be protected at all costs. Like if this were a John Grisham novel, for sure, what would be happening? Um, You know, they'll have to come up with a story to explain Igor's absence. I don't know. Like we have no idea what we're talking about, what the firm is, who Igor is. Um, But it doesn't matter because as long as the character is giving us specificity with panic, right, woven in, which you've done, um, it will add authenticity to the character's inner life, which is essential to make her seem real but also to get the reader invested in specific stakes and specific questions. I want to be on the lookout on the next chapters for clues. That's what Mm -hmm. happens when you read books like this. Tonally, you also gave me like Leon and Celeste and like this first prologue, um, this first page was more like, more like almost like a suspense psychological thriller-esque. So I don't know if, if that's intentional, if that's just me misreading it, but it's not a bad thing by any means. Like, uh, it's just something to think about because it didn't, it didn't read, it didn't read like a Celeste or Leon Moriarty book. Like their books are more about the relationships and more about the, um, there's tension and drama, but this prologue just, you know, there's, there's dead bodies. Like it just feels more, it just feels like a different genre. So that's my take on, on page one. And then Marcella's chapter, September, five months earlier. I don't know how to say this without sounding like a total jerk. It's so sweet. We have her loving her son. I kept highlighting all these beautiful, like all these beautiful mentions of how much she loves her son and what a great mom she is. It's really, really, really well done. You can write. Not many people can. You can write. You're doing a great job. But it's not suspenseful. It's not dramatic. There's no goal, obstacle, power imbalance. There is a goal in the sense that she has to get her son better and, you know, obstacle in the sense of his illness. But it's it's not, it's really sweet, but it's not as entertaining as I would have hoped. So I don't think you should start here. I think you should start with a scene. And, and, and his illness could be there as well, but we need something else happening. Not sure what, because I don't know enough about the story, but can we up the tension in any way? The first scene needs to have a little more. Um, Or else the prologue is doing the heavy lifting. And as you know, that doesn't work. Um, I also felt that there was a little bit of overwriting. Like you kept telling me things that I already knew and I've highlighted those those sections for you. So so you're not wasting valuable real estate. Okay, I will stop talking now before Bianca tells me that I my time is up. And from my experience, the overwriting comes from just a lack of confidence and just not trusting yourself yet. And I can tell you, Michelle, if Cece says you can write, you can damn well write. <laughs> so put that badge on yourself, print it out, put it up, look at it. And then trust yourself more as as you go forward. All right. So, Michelle, what questions or, or what comments do you have uh, for Cece? So how I have the novel structured right now is that I sort of have each woman have their own section where we see them as they are right before they come together and the the forces that are driving them together. But I'm wondering if I need to start later, if I, if I need to start um, when things are already in process and sort of work in the motivating factors. Is that kind of something that I'm hearing from you? 
Um, this is obviously not an exact science, so I can't say yes or no definitively, but probably not. Probably you are start like the idea that you're going to show their lives before it all changes is good. It just has to be an interesting moment. This is what's so challenging. Like, and I get it, right? Like I get that as a storyteller, you're probably going, hold on. You're telling me that I have to like show them before everything changes, but at the same time I have to entertain you. But the entertaining part of the story is when everything changes, find another entertaining part of the story. And it could be the smallest thing. The other day I read the best pages um, that landed in my query inbox. And the goal was literally the woman was trying to make an appointment at the dentist. She's a socialite, super wealthy. And the person behind the desk didn't like her because she had been rude to her before and wasn't like letting her, like, this is her, her opinion, obviously, wasn't letting her book the appointment because she had a problem with her. Doesn't that sound like the dumbest thing? It just, it worked. It worked because there was power imbalance. It was, it worked because there were like commentaries on class and it's just really well written. So I don't know. I don't know what the entertaining moment would be, but I don't think you need to start further down the story. I just don't think you need to start with like a really sweet moment that does make me feel empathetic, but does not make me feel curious. Okay. Would it not help in that instance, Cece, to kind of juxtapose her being this really sweet mom to her being kind of, I don't know, with somebody else so that we could see two sides of her personality because I, like I find because I find that moms are so sweet with their kids but like you might meet them in real life and they may be scary as shit you know with somebody else so maybe you know there's somebody else in her life that she's having some kind of conflict with while she's being super nice and super kind to her child maybe she's texting someone to go and f themselves or something I don't know I just feel like if we see more than one side of her personality that adds layering. What do you think, Cece? No, I agree. I absolutely agree. Especially if this uh, other in- situation has like a push and pull where like her power actually matters because our power matters nothing when it comes to an illness, right? Like money matters because unfortunately you can buy healthcare. You shouldn't be able to, you can, but 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 come on, you're still powerless. It's an illness. Um, Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Maybe something in her ghostwriting career? I don't know. I know that she writes for websites. So maybe this probably wouldn't make sense. Maybe she has like a freelance client she's trying to land who's like shameless and she's like putting him in his place I don't know I don't know but like something that just shows I can't believe that I'm quoting legally blonde here but you will notice that in legally blonde before the Harvard stuff starts she's actually arguing in a dress shop when she still thinks she's getting engaged and the salesperson tries to to pull a fast one on her and tries to get her to pay full price for a dress that's like two seasons ago and we see her standing up for herself so the lawyer in her was already there before she went to law school before any everything happened and that was an interesting scene because we also thought she was going to get swindled. We also thought that she was going to pay full price because she's just pretty and blonde and not that smart. But no, actually, she's brilliant. So defying stereotypes, showing power imbalance, showing two sides of someone. These are all typically good ways to start. I like that idea, Bianca. I love Legally Blonde. <laughs> well, there you go. You can learn the story. Learn the storytelling from there. Okay. Uh, what else, Michelle? What other questions do you have? I, I don't think I have any. Uh, I think that I I understand what you're saying. I think I think I need to dig in deeper and get a little bit more specific with uh, the prologue that I wasn't calling a prologue, <laughs> and then um, find a way to see. I thought I guess I thought that you know the son's life being in danger was like the height of drama and tension but you know why? you're not the first person who has pointed out that they were not drawn into this scene for whatever because reason empathy and curiosity are totally different things 
Right. I can feel for someone and my heart can break for someone, but I will not ask. And then what happens? Your right. goal is not to make anyone feel alone. Feeling is the goal, but you're, it always comes with curiosity. Fear and desire conveyed through surprise. All interesting scenes are either fear-based or desire-based or both. And it's always conveyed through surprise. After I notice this, I can't unsee it. Every single book I read, it could be literary fiction. Could, I'm telling you, there's an element of fear or desire as conveyed through surprise. It makes all the difference. Hmm. Well, like the illness element, right? It's like either they stay unwell or they get healthy, right? And it's like, th- there's not really that gray space in between that Cece's talking about in terms of like, what are we fearing, right? Or whoever, whoever's point of view we're in, we need to understand like, what's at stake if we lose this person, right? Like a mother to their mm-hmm. child is very dramatic, right? But we don't have a lot of like gray space in terms of when we're dealing with like illness as a plot point. It's right? why in all the medical dramas, really, the stuff that you're, you're you're paying attention to is the relationship between the staff, like the doctors and nurses and administrators, like, it, it, because to Carly's great point, like you can get better or you cannot. And mm-hmm. yeah, if there were like a moral dilemma where she had to decide whether her son would get a transplant and she would, I don't, this is obviously not the plot in your story, but like she would try to skip the line, you know, by bribing someone. But then what's interesting isn't the illness. What's interesting is the, is the gray area Car- Carly mentioned. That's what, that's what you have to explore. So this is not an illness story and I don't think it should be because that's not what your story is about. Stories about three women going on this trip. So, but then we have to find something in her life. And I like Bianca's idea about, you know, showing this other side of her. Mm-hmm. And and just for Collie and Cece, so something came up a few weeks ago in a podcast episode when Emmy Nordstrom Hickton came onto the podcast. And Emmy said when somebody submits a multiple POV novel that they would like to see a sample of at least one of the other POVs in those five pages. And I know that's not something Carly and Cece have said that they want. And we've already had some questions uh, on Twitter about that. So Carly and Cece, what's your take on that? You don't need it, but you can understand why other agents do. Or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it kind of comes back to Cece's point about like, a writer's job is to hook us from page one, right? So if you don't feel like the first POV is hooking us, and therefore you need to provide a second POV, then why is that, right? And so I'm not opposed just, to... No, just, sorry, just to clear that up, uh, Emmy wasn't saying that's the reason why. They just wanted to know that the writer had the chops to manage two very distinct POVs, especially if they're like first person or whatever. So so that's what they said they wanted to see. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally, it, it makes perfect sense. One of the biggest reasons that editors pass on multi-POV projects is because they're not equally invested in all two, three, four characters, right? That's the number one reason they pass. Always, always, always. Number one reason. So it is a fact that all of your POVs have to be unique, distinct, compelling, you know, it, it, all in their own way. And so I, I definitely understand why Emmy would want that. And yeah, that gives me something to think about for sure. Cece, what do you think? I absolutely understand the wanting to see that. I wouldn't have a problem with someone being sneaky and just putting in more pages, pasted on them. I have no problem with sneaky people. So like if you if you anyone does that, I will have no problem. However, I feel like that rationale could also be applied to everything else. I want to see if you can escalate the stakes. So show me the page where you escalate the stakes. I want to see the page where you like reach the climax. So 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 really no. Like I'm gonna find out when I request your pages and I read your whole thing. And I'm only gonna read your whole thing if I'm hooked from the beginning. So 
If you master the first POV because your scene is so compelling, I promise if the issue is that the voices aren't distinctive enough, I'm not going to not sign someone because of that. Like if I love the story, I'm just going to write you a letter saying you have to make the two POVs different or or whatever other reason. So I, I get the, the rationale. I just think it could be applied to everything. And so there's a reason why we get samples and not everything. Yeah. So, so for our listeners, remember agents are human beings. They're vastly different. Uh, and their approach to things is is vastly different. So that unfortunately doesn't give you a definitive answer. But once again, it tells you how subjective this whole process is. There right, are Michelle? no definitive answers in publishing for anything. <laughs> true, true. Right. So Michelle, thanks so much for joining us. It was lovely having you on the show and you hope you uh, we hope you found that helpful. I found it very helpful. Thank you. It was it was wonderful. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for being brave. We really, really <laughs> appreciate you. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up in January, the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that again look at the website biancamaray.com and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. Today's guest has been a contributor and regular columnist for a number of national, regional, and local publications, including HuffPost, Elite Daily, and She Knows. A former actor on stage and on screen, she's been suspended from wires as a mall fairy, was accidentally concussed by a blank gun, and hosted a short-lived game show. She's been a relationship columnist, a movie theater and book reviewer, and a radio personality, and is a close observer of relationships in the wild. She lives in Austin, Texas with her husband and two excellent dogs. This is her sixth novel that we're going to be discussing today, The Way We Weren't. It's my pleasure to welcome Phoebe Fox. Phoebe, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you back. And for our listeners, I just want to say that Phoebe Fox was on the podcast a few months ago as Tiffany Yates Martin. In her capacity as an editor, it was a wonderful interview. And now today we get to have her back as Phoebe Fox. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me back. It's fun to get to come back twice. Yeah, absolutely. And each time in a very different capacity because mm -hmm. your editor hat is very different to your author hat. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to be picking your brain this time from that different side of things. So for our listeners, uh, Phoebe has written an amazing book called The Way We Weren't. We will be discussing characterization as it pertains to this book. And then we're also going to be discussing, you know, having an author name, a pen name, whether you should keep it secret, whether it's something you should uh, disclose if you have that dual identity. And let's hear what she has to say. So firstly, Phoebe, can you tell our listeners a bit about the way we worked? Yes. Uh, this one has been a long time in the making. <laughs> I started it. It was the first full-length fiction I ever started about 15 years ago. And it just took this long to kind of come together. It was really ambitious for me to take on, I think, early in my writing. I had only done short stories and journalism. So I think I always joke, I kind of had to mature as a writer and as a human being to be able to write about some of the ideas in the story. It's about a woman who has been married for 20 years to her high school sweetheart. They've been very happy for the most part. They've been childless um, initially by circumstance, and then later they embraced it. And then right as that biological window is closing, they get pregnant and fall on opposite sides of what it means to them. And it throws their long and happy marriage into a sudden crisis that neither one of them expected. So one day Marcy's driving to work and she just 
misses her exit, keeps going, finds herself driving down to a beach in Florida. And then we switch point of views to Herman Flint, who has lived there his whole life. He's 70 something years old. He has become, uh, because of a loss in his past that he refuses to deal with, he's become very bitter and withdrawn. And he finds this woman passed out on the beach in front of his house. And for some inexplicable reason, this misanthropic man picks her up and pulls her into his house. And then the two of them form an unlikely friendship that forces both of them to face some of these choices that they got stuck in. They're both kind of stuck in regret and unable to move forward. And Marcy's at that fork in the road now and has to decide which way she's going to jump in her life. And Flint sort of refused to deal with it and stayed stuck at that fork in the road for decades. And the two of them just push each other out of that comfort zone. There's a lot of fun to write these two really disparate personalities. Yeah. And even though they're so different, I love that you've immediately shown our listeners where they are similar, because that's the thing, especially with dual POV novels, is that, you know, you can have these two very, very different characters and their lives can intersect, but there needs to be some kind of commonality to explain to the reader why it's these two particular characters and not two totally different characters and why their stories intersect as opposed to why this isn't two different novels completely. So that's that's an excellent point. So in terms of your characterization, I loved these two characters. And like you say, so incredibly different, but, you know, not so different when you get down to, to you know, brass tacks. So can you explain to us your process for characterization? Do characters come to you kind of fully formed and then you write the story from there? Do you write the story to get to know the characters and therefore the story keeps evolving as you get to know them? I'd really love to know your process because again, you are an editor and even though you wear a different hat when you write, that has to kind of factor in. It has helped and hindered (laughs) being an editor because the hardest thing I had to learn was get out of editor brain when I write. I'm sure you've done this as a writer. We have all done this where you're so caught up in judging your own writing, you're not free to create it. So that was really hard. But it also taught me, I always say that analyzing other authors' work is the best way to learn craft because you have the objectivity you don't have with your own work. So in that regard, it's been unbelievably helpful. But as a writer, I always start with the idea of characters. I used to say pantser. But I really do have a little more structure than that. I always kind of know what journey I want to send these people on and basically where I want them to end up. I don't know how I'm going to get there because to me that takes the fun away of writing it. Um, But it also makes it a lot harder. That's one of the reasons this one took 15 years to write. So I start with an idea of something that fascinates me about the characters I want to write about. And I generally know kind of what their personalities will be like. And then it's fun to sort of, I'm really into psychology. I think a lot of writers are, we're fascinated by what makes people tick, you know, why they do what they do. And so it's interesting to me to take, um, for example, with Flint, I used to know, I used to date a guy who was, this was so many years ago, and he was a younger guy in his thirties at the time, such an angry person. But I also knew him to have this, uh, I joked it was his soft, chewy center, but I don't, uh, we wound up, it, it contributed to our breaking up. And I started wondering what happens to someone, first of all, what creates someone like that? What makes you protect yourself in that way? Because that's really what it is. And then what would happen 
you know, the what ifs that we're all fascinated with. What would happen if somebody like that was unable to ever move out of that and just calcified within it? And with Marcy, I wanted, um, I initially had her in an unhappy marriage that she fled, but that to me felt a little bit obvious and easy. Um, we've all seen that story. And so I started thinking when I started writing this, I was not married. I had never been married. 15 years later, I'm very happily married um, for the last 10 years. And I, I was trying to write about a long-term marriage that was unhappy without ever having experienced really either one of those things. And so I thought it would be more interesting to write about a long-term marriage that had been extremely happy and what it would take to make somebody reassess something that they have not just accepted, but been incredibly content with. And then, as you said, as I start writing it, I like to just kind of dig into what that is and explore it. But you can't just rely on the characterization. I mean, you can, I guess, in certain genres. That's a lot of literary fiction. But in my genre, which is, you know, commercial women's fiction, book market, book uh, club fiction, you need to have more of a story than that. And that was one of the areas where I struggled to. I had, I threw these two characters together who I found interesting, but you astutely pointed out that they connect on a, on a certain struggle that they're both having. And I think I had to find that key and where each of them shared a similar struggle. I had to understand something of what shaped them, their backstories, before I could understand what how they needed to move forward, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But so when you figure that out, when you get to the point in the story where you go, okay, I need to understand this thing so that the story can move forward. Is it a case you write until then and then go, okay, I need to unpack this thing? Or is it a case of you think about the story and think about the story and go, this is something I need to know before I begin writing the story? How how was that part of the process for you? A little bit of both. I'm a percolating writer. And so I say this took me 15 years to write, but I was not writing for 15 years, right? A lot of that is percolation time. And these people start to kind of live in a little corner of your brain as a, as most writers, I think. And they just kind of begin to patchwork together and you're constantly finding facets of them. But I also love, there's a Stephen King quote, and I can never find it to verify that, but I'm certain I read it in On Writing where he says, um, he, he's a little bit of a pantser too. And he says he has these characters who interest him and he puts them in situations that interest him. And then he brings them on stage and he says, what happens next? You don't know. They will come on stage and tell you. And I just love that because for me, I think that's partly why I am a pantser to a degree. I have to put them in action before I understand who they are. So for example, Flint's story, backstory, is absolutely key to who he is and how he reacts to Marcy and how and what his arc and journey are in the story. But that came up almost accidentally as I was kind of free writing about him one day, which is not something I often do, but I I wanted a I wanted to figure out what the matter was with him with this guy. Like what makes somebody that bitter and closed off and angry? And so I just started thinking about he uh, he had raised his daughter as a single father. And I just started thinking about what that would be like for a gruff guy like him who who did not think he was capable of such a thing to have this little girl left in his care and what would happen in their lives and what kind of father might he have been and what might have happened in their relationship or with her that could have been so impactful that it changed the course of the rest of his life. It, what, you, what you've just said now has made me so happy because I do this as well. So I sit down and my characters just do things that I was not <laughs> expecting them to do. They say these kinds of things 
And then I look at it and I'm like, whoa, okay, where did that come from? And then I try and figure out where it came from in terms of what would explain that kind of behavior. And I know there's tons of writers who would freak the hell out when you suggest that to them because they're like, well, who's in control here? Are you as the writer in control here or are the characters in control? And I will very happily say my characters are in control. And it's it's my job, like you say, writer as therapist to figure out why they do the things they do, why they say the things they do. And I feel like as human beings and as writers, this is something that comes so naturally to us. I've just finished reading Anne Patchett's uh, latest collection of essays, oh. uh, These Precious, Precious Days. And she was talking about how she filled in this whole backstory for a friend of hers who didn't really talk about their life. And so she just filled in all this backstory and made these assumptions about this friend without really knowing the true story. And and that's what I think we do as writers all the time, even you know, unconsciously. I think we do too. First of all, we have to be in touch with human emotions and reactions and who people are because that's the basis of good story is character, in my opinion. Um, Plot's important, mistakes are important, all of that. But none of it matters unless we can relate to the human element or the, uh, I guess, human-ish element because it doesn't have to be a human character, right? It could be the octopus from my octopus teacher. But there needs to be something we can dig into. And I do think that one of the reasons a lot of us gravitate to this is that desire to pick apart who people are, why they do what they do, what brought them to this part, to this point in their lives. I do exactly what you do and I create backstories. And I think it's partly that love of psychology. And I also joke, it's partly my own neuroticism <laughs> because I'll, you know, I'll decide, oh, this, this is a silly example, but you know, this person didn't call me. I'll bet you this happened. I'll, you know, I'll bet you they were hit by a car and they're in the hospital and I have this whole scenario or something as ridiculous as, oh my gosh, I probably said something to offend them. Now let me figure out what that thing was. And I just start parsing it out. But that really works well for fiction. Yeah, it doesn't work so well in real life when you contact the person and start apologizing for everything you've ever said and done. <laughs> and they are like, I have no idea what you're on about. I was just busy this week. That happens oh to me God. a lot as well. And I think a lot of our listeners will be able to to listen to that as well. I think, uh, you know, the, the cliche is there that writers are neurotic to a large degree because it's true. You know, we are so much in our heads. Mm, yeah, I was just going to say we're, we're self-examining all the time and we're examining other people all the time. And to your point about the characters taking on their own life, I, you know, that's part of the fun to me of writing is they do. My husband thinks this is so... Psycho, I'll come out from a writing session and I'll say exactly what you just said. You know, oh, I was writing this scene and all of a sudden the characters did this such and such. And I had no idea that was going to happen. And it's the coolest thing. I can't wait to see what happens next. And he goes, you're writing it (laughs) and doesn't understand that, that I think you do give them the basic ingredients and then they come on stage and do what they will with them. There's something magic about that. 100%. And it's it's almost like the best kind of improv. It's like you have these characters and you give them a what if scenario and they've just got to, they've got to run with it. And yes, it is your subconscious, but there is an alchemy to it. It's, it's watching your subconscious at work, you know, which is, which not many people get to do in their own professions, which is wonderful. So in terms of that backstory, once you've figured out that backstory, how do you incorporate that? Do you try and withhold it for as long as possible? so that the reader is intrigued as to what their backstory is, so that they keep reading to try and figure out why the person 
is the way they are? Or once you figure it out, do you like to just put it all there for, for the reader? What's your strategy with regards to that? Because backstory continues to be a huge bone of contention uh, in terms of emerging writers and depending on who you speak to. I absolutely love backstory. I think it's essential to good story. But I, I do think we can get caught up in telling the wrong story because we're not telling the backstory. We're telling the story that we're telling. And the backstory, none of us appear fully formed as who we are. We are an amalgam of every experience we've ever had, every person we've ever known, every emotion we've ever had. So it's essential that we know some of that to create well-rounded characters and understand why they do what they do. But I, I teach a backstory course, actually, because I think this is one of the most important elements of good writing. It fleshes out your characters and your stories, but it can also stall momentum like nothing else if you're not using it judiciously. So um, I talk about different ways of salting that it, salting in a lot of this information, being the main ones being context, memory, and flashback. Um, context is constant. It permeates every element of your writing. So for example, if you have a scene where, you know, a man comes up, let's say the father of a woman's kids comes up to the door and he's picking them up because I don't know, they're sharing custody. And when she opens the door, she looks furious and she said, and she looks at her watch and she goes late again. And he rolls his eyes and goes, come on, Helen today. Now in that little bit of context, we understand something about their history and their relationship. So that's what I mean by weaving that in throughout the whole thing. But then with like memory and flashback, those are the ones that can weigh things down. And authors tend to make one of two mistakes, uh, me included. <laughs> we'll either dump it all in one place, which pulls us out of the story that we're reading and pushes us into a, a backward looking scene that may be relevant, but it takes us out of the forward momentum of the story we're in, which is cardinal sin. Or we try to be... We try to use it to create suspense, which is a great instinct, but we might withhold so much of it that it feels coy or cryptic. And that just frustrates readers because we don't care. You know, if you keep saying, oh, she was so angry at Johnny, she would never speak of what he did to her. That's artificial for starters, especially if we're in her point of view. But it also feels like readers sense that that's a manipulation. So we have to find a way to do that where we're as I say in the course, what does the reader know and when do they need to know it? It's kind of the Watergate of backstory. So you have to decide, first of all, you have to plant our feet in the story enough that we understand what's going on. So if you say something as cryptic as, you know, she'd never forget that fight and what happened, find the element in that fight that is the one thing you want to withhold and reveal for impact later on and give us the rest. You don't have to withhold everything because then we don't have our feet planted under us and we don't understand what's going on in the story. So I do talk a lot. I With Flint's backstory, for example, it becomes a central mystery. Marcy, in her point of view, doesn't know what this, what his situation is, but she starts finding clues and those clues offer the reader a bit of context. But then in his point of view, um, as you pointed out before, I wrote it in close third person. So essentially we're in his head and her, his perspective. It would be artificial to pretend that that didn't happen in his life or have him never think of her. So I have to find the balance between revealing enough that I keep the essential reveal that comes later, but also having it feel like a natural way he might think about his child and what happened. And one thing that made that easier in his case was that he is so stuck in this place and his personality, he doesn't face things. He compartmentalizes them and puts them in a box. 
So I was able to do that to a degree, but I couldn't just ignore her. And I couldn't ignore other characters, like there's a neighbor who knew his daughter. I couldn't ignore that she also knew what happened. I had to find ways of teasing that in so the reader knew there was something there and knew a little bit about what it was. But we get, I call it peeling the onion. You get a little a little more as the story develops until you finally get that one thing that hopefully makes you go, whoa. Yeah. Uh, as you were describing backstory now, it made me think of how I, I sometimes describe it to my students. It's think of a puzzle that's been done and that sort of, let's say it's a hundred piece puzzle and about 20 really integral puzzle pieces have been left out of it. They're missing or whatever. And that's what backstory needs to do. It needs to complete the whole picture so that when you fit in those 20 little puzzle pieces, it gives you the face of someone that was missing in the puzzle, et cetera, et cetera. So present story and backstory need to fit perfectly together to create the whole picture. Backstory is not to create a whole other damn puzzle. Um, I love that. I yeah, call it and, a tapestry instead of a patchwork quilt. Same thing. So you want the threads woven in, not in big chunks, because that's perfect analogy. I love the puzzle. And and I loved your um, example of, you know, when he arrives late and she's like, late again, and he's like, not this again. You know, that's a perfect way of kind of showing character dynamic in terms of backstory, because some writers would get to that point as he's arriving, and then they would have her going, she thinks back to all the times <laughs> that he was late, and the first time, and the second time, and when he did this, and how it led to their divorce, you know, which is not what the reader needs then, because like you say, backward momentum stops the forward momentum, but just those two little lines, you know, late again, not today, boom, it just tells you so much about their their dynamic and so much backstory that you then don't need to be writing all this exposition and info dumping about that. In terms of managing third person close and changing that perspective according to who you're writing about, because from when I was in Herman Flint's perspective, it's like even without you having written his name or even without those prologues, I knew I was in his perspective. And many writers think third person close is the exact same narrative voice and it just kind of the pronouns or whatever shift around, which is not the case. So could you give our listeners some tips as to how to change the narrative voice in third person close, depending on which character you're spending time with? Uh, first, thank you for that saying that, because that was a thing I really focused hard on is I wanted readers to understand whose perspective they were in, even if I didn't identify them, because they're different. Uh, I always joke that third person close is like third person objective and first person had a baby. So it's really written in, it's got the pronouns, the he, she, you know, third person pronouns, but you can think of it as you are directly in that character's perspective. One, I have the stupidest metaphors when I'm teaching and doing workshops. So one of the ones I use for, third, for uh, point of view is to imagine that you're Ant-Man. And so if you're in first person, Ant-Man actually is the character. Like Ant-Man, we're in Ant-Man's head. So whatever he sees is what's on the page, all his perceptions. If you're writing third person objective, Ant-Man is sort of tied on the shoulder of the character and is allowed to flit into the character's head and observe their direct thoughts and feelings, but they can't feel them firsthand. They can only report on what they're seeing and feeling or the character's feeling, but they can also look, you know, they're tethered so they can look anywhere else. They can see stuff that the character doesn't see, Ant-Man can, um, and can have different perspectives, but only what is within the character's direct purview because Ant-Man's tethered to his shoulder. But in third person close, Ant-Man is, Ant-Man can like 
fly in and out of the head directly. Ant-Man, to all intents and purposes, is that character. So they can only know what they know. And that means can only feel what they feel. Cannot see things or be aware of things they don't know, just like first person. So that means that every single word of the narrative in that character's point of view is filtered through their perspective, not just their thoughts and their direct perspective of like what they're doing, but every single line. So the vernacular that they might use, the words, the rhythm of speaking, the way they describe things, the things that they notice. Like there was one silly little thing where I have him say something about Marcy puts her hair in a like a braid or something. I can't even remember what. And he calls it a tail. Like he, he he's a he's a gruff old dude and he doesn't know ponytail or braid. He he's just a tail. It's just it's a bunch of hair gathered. But it's not his dialogue or his thought. It's just in the narrative because we're in his head essentially. So you just have to remember that you are you are confined to that character's perspective, even though you are writing it from the he/she point of view. You cannot break it by knowing things they don't know or jumping around in time or knowing what another character is thinking or feeling other than what you are observing in their reactions. hundred percent. And um, for, for our listeners, a tip here is if you struggle with third person close, try writing the character in first person. Write them in first person because that gets you super, super close to them and then change the pronouns and, you know, the he and the she and call them by the name. And you're already so much closer because I find when people write third person close, they take too much of a step back um, in terms of the difference between first and, and third person. And that could be a really great exercise for doing that. I think that's when you get that um, head hopping thing, you know, when they do exactly what you just said. We all do it when when it becomes that line becomes blurred between what close third person is and what omniscient third is yeah. or omniscient is or objective third. Yeah, absolutely. We've only got four minutes left, so I've quickly got to ask you about your your writing under two different names. In the beginning, you kind of kept the one identity secret, and then you outed your secret identity. So could you give our listeners a bit of um, an understanding of that? If anybody out there wants to write under a pen name, when should they keep it private? When is it something that should kind of be well known? I kept it private. Well, I selected it at first because I, I primarily identify as an editor. That's my career. I've been in it for 30 years and I love it. And I didn't want the authors I work with to feel that they came second to my writing career. So I wanted to separate it. And that's also why I kept it on the down low. And then about a year ago, I I re-examined my reasons and I realized that is a big part of it, but also it was coming out of fear. Um, I think there's a certain level of remove as an editor. And you are saying to people, you know, you're holding up the mirror and saying, here's what I see in your work. I think I was scared that authors I worked with might read my work and go, well, that's not so great. Why should, you know, what does she know? <laughs> and and <laughs> I'm really hard not to operate out of a place of fear anymore. And that also felt a little dishonest. It was sort of me holding myself apart from the authors that I work with. Like I'm up here seeing the, you know, 30,000 foot view and you're in the forest. And it, it felt ungenuine not to reveal that I, I've been there. I know what that feels like. I'm in the trenches too. And also you're just so lovely who you are as a person and readers love connecting with writers in that way, you know, and I feel like 
yeah, I feel like it's so hard to market our books. It's so hard to put them out there and give them the best freaking chance we possibly can. And so each of us have got strengths that we absolutely need to play to. And I feel that your kind of bubbly effervescence is, you know, a huge part of your strength as an author and definitely something you should be playing to as well. So I'm glad you you kind of uh, outed yourself there. Thanks. It feels more integrated and it's nice. It's nice. I don't feel like I'm pulling one over on anybody and and like you said, Phoebe used to feel like this sort of creation. And now that I've um, owned her, <laughs> she's me. She's she's just another facet of me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. And once again, the time has flown by. Thank you uh, for taking the time again to chat with us. We wish you much success with this book. For our listeners, get the book. It is a wonderful, wonderful it's kind of a masterclass in how to do third person close, especially when the characters are so incredibly different. And, you know, when we're looking at those sort of unusual friendships, etc. So uh, thanks so much, Phoebe slash Tiffany. Thanks, Bianca. That means so much to me. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. 
and then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.